Let's read together first before we ask the Lord's blessing. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18, the church in Thyatira, the smallest city with the longest letter. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, this is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your last deeds are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, who should, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality, eat things, sacrifice to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her, great, with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not have this teaching... Who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will break them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have also received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we do come now desiring to learn this morning and to be exposed to your word as revealed here, that we might see clearly this vision first given to John of your son, the son of God, with eyes like a flame of fire and feet as burnished bronze that come out of fire. May this language, as sharp as it is, help us to pause. Let it be a reminder of who Christ is. A reminder that He, yes, is the Savior, but He is also returning as a judge. Let that sink in for us even as your church, as we worship him this morning, and we look at this text together. We just ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I was looking ahead this week at the, the preaching calendar, I, I do kind of know where I'm headed, for those of you who wonder. I do like going through books because it makes it pretty simple. Next verse, next chapter. Um, and then pick a new book. Next verse, next chapter. But I do give some consideration, and I look ahead and I go, okay, we got something coming up. We don't really do a Thanksgiving service, but some note there. But it's kind of hard to avoid Christmas. And then I'm looking ahead and kind of see this morning, we actually were supposed to have a guest speaker. And so he wasn't able to make it. Something came up with his church in Louisville. And so I'm preaching this morning. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be not quite where I want to be. Maybe then, where am I going to land? Because if you hit Thyatira on Christmas morning, the pastor does have a question. Is this the one you want to do on Christmas? 
Or do you go ahead and do that, you know, one-off sermon on Matthew chapter 2? I think there's a way that I could even preach this sermon on Christmas. It might be a little more difficult, but as you get into Revelation, what you have, and you have this obviously in the scriptures period, is it's never very difficult to get to Christ. And even this contrast, because we're going to get there, right? I mean, it's November 6th. Christmas music has started on certain stations. Some of you I know have already listened. I'm not sure it's a sin or not, but it's the Let your conscience be your guide. But if you have that picture of a baby in a manger, which is good and right in the sense that it represents Christ becoming a human, right? The kenosis that he has added. He's put on flesh and become like us in every respect, except he has not sinned. But Revelation gives that kind of balancing effect to not forget who is, yes, lying, swaddling in a manger, but he is the coming king. In the vision of John, in John chapter 1, which then gets picked up in all these letters to the churches, is one in which you go, I don't hear that very often at Christmas. And I might go ahead and say, that's okay. But the issue is, I don't know if you hear much about this Jesus in churches the rest of the year. And you should. And this is a good reminder. It's one of the blessings, I think, of just uh, when you look at the promise, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I can't help but think one of those blessings is you're not going to be caught off guard and going, I don't recognize this Jesus. Rather, you're familiar with all of Scripture and you go, I understand that He is a Savior, that He has come, and that even here, He's willing to wait. He gave, we'll talk about the nature of who is Jezebel here in a moment, but He gave her time to repent. He is long-suffering, but that does not last forever. And don't think that He will not come and that He will not judge. That coming is... That's what Revelation is all about. That's what is being revealed. Christ himself, and yes, and his return. We've looked at these first three churches, and there's some helpful things here. If you remember about Ephesus, and to give you a little bit of this postal route that we have up there. If it wants to turn. Let's see if we're... Uh-oh. Already to the rescue, maybe. We'll see. But if you you get it up there, you'll see it on the poster out. The first church, Ephesus, which of course had an issue, which is Ephesus was the cold church. They did not love. That's not going to be the issue with Thyatira. Smyrna, they didn't have any significant issues other than he says, look, you have suffered for me. They were persecuted, and they were persecuted for, I would say, the very thing that Pergamum and Thyatira, the church this morning, did not do. Because we looked last week, Pergamum, what did they do? Without accommodating Satan. Because if you look back, you see here that the, the church at Pergamum, the few things he has against them is that they are there where Satan dwells, verse 13. And they have there some who hold, and he uses an Old Testament reference, very similar to what we're going to see here in Jezebel. And he says, they hold to the teaching of Balaam. 
should light a candle to go back to the book of Numbers. And they kept the teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. And yet we come to Thyatira and you go, there seems to be pretty similar issues. And I don't want to mince words, uh, you know, cut it up too tightly. Because they both seem to have similar issues. And you could say one is a little more on the side of accommodating, of compromise. And this church might be a little bit more on the side of just pure corruption. There seems to be even a greater toleration. I don't know if that, that, that feeling you get is similar issues, but probably even worse when you get to Thyatira. And there's a unique issue in this city that probably causes that. And we're going to look at that as we come to the text this morning. Sometimes you study scripture, you know, you're looking at... We're trying to bridge a cultural gap. This is 2,000 years ago. There's differences. And what's always amazing as you study is that as you come to Thyatira and you come to the city, and I, I looked at whether it was Smyrna that felt very left coast or Pergamon that kind of felt very much like the east coast of America. Thyatira is, is a little bit different, but it still has the same kinds of pressure. It's, it's a smaller city. But in that small city, they're able to apply pressure, that cultural pressure. And, and that, I think for all of us, is pretty easy to recognize. I don't know if you feel that the culture, the media, pressures you to believe certain things, to celebrate certain things. That's the pressure in this small city. Particularly, their issue of pressure comes within the form of the nature of their business. The nature of their business was that they pretty much, because of the Roman Empire coming over and the peace that they brought, the relative peace they brought, they weren't that important of a city except for the fact that they began to become the, this kind of hub for the textile industry. Particularly because they were marketing and selling dyes, D-Y-E. You got tired of wearing gray and white? Come to Thyatira. They'll spice it up. They'll give you purple and different colors. In fact, the first biblical reference comes from Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. And it says that a woman named Lydia in Acts 16 from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And this is in the city of Philippi, so kind of northwest if we're looking on the map. And she was there, she was selling, and she became a believer in the church of Philippi. It's a letter to the Philippians. Likely she hosted that church. But she's known as one from Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. That gives you an idea of what they are known for. And that was characteristically true of that city. But the local business, we all kind of understand unions. We understand that you're, you're part of certain things. And if you want to stay part of those unions or those clubs, that you have to abide by certain rules. And that's where the catch came in at Thyatira. The catch came in because these... Unions or these guilds, every one of them, because of the culture, adopted certain things. 
Particularly, they adopted what was known as patron gods, little g. They had patron gods. And if you wanted to be part of the union, you had to pay your dues. You had to show up in the meetings, and you had to worship the patron god. If I mentioned the names of these, these are not gods that you would know. This isn't like someone well-known in history. But they each had their little one, and patron just simply means protector. That they kind of viewed superstitiously, yes, but don't make the patron mad, and he'll protect you, and he'll make your business prosperous. So now, you've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Thyatira. You've heard it. And you're called to reject all gods, not just the emperor cult that we've seen throughout uh, Pergamum and Smyrna, but you're, you're rejecting everyone. Saying, I, I can't do that anymore. Well, not only are you going to be blamed for any negative business that happens, they're just going to say, you can't be part of it. And they're not even smiling. Go, we wish you could be. All you have to do is, as we've talked about worship, you just light the candle, and then you can be part of us. Again, it's not our fault. It's your choice, and you're just choosing not to do something as simple as go and light the candle and move forward. The culture says, your family's starving. That's not on me. It's on you. Just get with the program. But the Christians can't do it. But yet in that retire, that's where you start to see what Christ has against them because they start to compromise. They start to be corrupted from the inside out because someone comes along and is going to tell them, it's okay. You can have your cake and you can eat it too. And that's the issue that they are faced with. As best we know in Thyatira, and it's described in all of this language, and he pulls out this Old Testament language that is just as graphic as this New Testament language. I mean, it's not much more graphic than if you were to, and we'll do a little bit of this, but you flip back to 1 Kings and you look at the life of Jezebel, it gets pretty graphic from the beginning until her own death. And so I want to look this morning, and I think if you look at Jezebel and you look at this, I think this stands in as a picture. It's likely not this person's name, but it could be a single person who is teaching this. But just like using Balaam, this is to conjure up something, and the, the sin of Jezebel, the uniqueness, if you want to look at Jezebel, is that it was an idolatry that was absolutely shameless. It's not to say any idolatry is okay. It's just to say this was unique in the history of Israel when Ahab marries Jezebel. Because many of the kings of Israel, first uh, kings, second kings, they end up taking foreign religions and they kind of add them. They have the worship of Yahweh and they have the high places where they offer sacrifices to the other gods. Not Jezebel. Jezebel comes in and she doesn't want to say, okay, we have Yahweh over here and I have mine over here. Which is its own problem, which isn't good. It's exactly what God commanded them not to do. But Jezebel does something different. I think we have time. We'll just flip over. First Kings. Chapter 16. First Kings chapter 16. There's the end of the chapter. You'll see that. You, I mean, just in this chapter, if you're looking at headings, you see one, two, three, four different kings reigning, and not much is written. They're all there. And then you get to Ahab. And it, 
it's not likely so much that Ahab is special in any other way, and a little more likely that you're going to see that Elijah, who is going to prophesy, is going to be uniquely used of God. And so you get a little more information once Ahab comes to the throne. But Ahab, and we're first mentioned here, then verse 31. Now it happened as though it had been a trivial thing. So that's you just gotta love the way Scripture mentions things at times. Just a trivial thing from him. To walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, as a wife, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. You're gonna go on and Elijah's gonna predict a, a drought. All these things are going to happen in 17, 18. And one of the things that happens in 18 that you may know better than other stories in Old Testament is all the prophets of Baal are gathered. And spoiler alert, they're going to lose when they face off with Elijah. And they're all ultimately going to be killed. That is the prophets of Baal. Well, that is not going to leave it sitting well with Jezebel. So she doesn't go, well, man, I better listen. I better pay attention to this God of Israel. No, she in turn basically promises that I will kill every single prophet out of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, she, she's just going around the king himself and I'll send you a direct message from the queen. So may the gods do to me even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by about this time tomorrow. She just saw not only the miracle that was performed in the lighting of the fire that was drenched with water, in chapter 18, but she saw all the prophets of Baal killed, and she's still going, boom, I'm going to get after Elijah and every prophet of Yahweh, and I'm going to do everything in my being to destroy them. That's, that's pretty unique to all the syncretism that goes on, that is the, the meshing of uh, the foreign gods in Israel throughout the Old Testament. This is, this is uniquely, this is this shameless that she walks in and is that forward with it. You're going to see a similar story in 21 with Naboth's vineyard that she's known for, and you can look at that a little bit later. But ultimately, after Naboth's vineyard in chapter 21, what is promised is that you might leave, live the, the good life for now. But what is prophesied of her? Verse 23. Yahweh condemns Ahab and what he's done to Naboth. Killed an innocent man on Jezebel's advice. In verse 23 he says, Of Jezebel also has Yahweh spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat. Surely, he says, there was no one who sold himself not language. Dire Tyro. They sell goods. Are they willing to sell themselves? Ahab did. He sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And he acted very abominably in following idols, according to all the Amorites had done, from 
whom Yahweh disposed, dispossessed before the sons of Israel. We won't take the time to flip back to Revelation chapter 2, but you go to note 2 Kings chapter 9, everything that Elijah prophesied comes true. Jehu comes into the city, and Jezebel is pushed off a tall building, falls, dies. What the text basically says is that he runs her over, blood is splattered on the horses and on the wall. And the dogs eat pretty much everything to left. All that's left is her palms and her skull. It's not the story you hear in Sunday school. Patching the takeover crap, right? But it is to say, do you remember that story? Yeah. Is it a pretty graphic picture? Oh, yeah. Do you remember the... Son of God, chapter 2, verse 18, the one with eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze? Yeah. And when you read that the sin is the sin of Jezebel, you go, connect, right? This is significant. This is severe. Just like Pergamon, look at verse 1 here. It is not comforting. This is serious business. I, I don't know why. I, mean, I love my grandpa. He was a kind of man. But when I think of sternness and seriousness and kind of that... You just have one grandpa, and he had a way of carrying himself, probably like all of that generation, Navy, World War II, and just, I, I liked him, but he, when I was little, just were definitely like, I walked the eggshells. When grandpa said, don't run in the house, I didn't run in the house, right? When mom and dad said, don't run in the house, I was like, maybe. <laughs> but when grandpa said, don't run in the house, you listened, don't run in the house. And that's this sit up straight this vision of Jesus as presented to Thyatira, which is again that same phrase repeated from the, the vision in chapter 1, to sit up and to listen. And so in these verses, 18, 19, and 20, it's kind of the first part we're going to look at. We're going to look at four different ways to avoid shameless idolatry in the church. And the first one here is we want to avoid shameless idolatry, which I would say is a good summary of the issue of Jezebel. Because yes, idolatry is happening in Pergamum. Yes, idolatry is happening in Thyatira. What's unique about Thyatira? It seems to be the shameless nature of it, like Jezebel. They're not even ashamed of it. They're just going at it over and over and not thinking anything of it. And they're kind of living their Christian life, which they will be commended for in some ways. But they don't realize you cannot tolerate this and avoid judgment. So we need to avoid shameless idolatry in the church. And the one thing here, verse 18, 19, that I look at is we need to do something. We need to pursue something. And that is pursue both purpose and purity within the church. Pursue purpose and purity. For me, when I started paying attention to football, it was a mistake. It was unfortunate because it was 1993. So Oscars always win. Doesn't happen anymore. When I was kind of paying attention, I remember in sermons for the first time. I don't know if you guys ever had that switch. You used to sit in church all the time. I never listened. And then one day it kind of clicked and I started listening. And when I started listening, what was really popular at the time was not preaching scripture, it was really preaching books. So I've kind of talked about this before, but I can remember different things we'd be going through at the church I, we were at. And they would be preaching book of the um, kind of almost book of the month type of thing. And of course, it was popular. 
20 years ago, everywhere is purpose-driven life. And so, when you look here, these churchgoers, these members of the Church of Tyre, they have it going on. They understand what it is to be a Christian. They are purposeful. Purpose isn't bad. But the danger with that whole movement, which along came what a lot of people talk about, is there's this movement in the church where everything becomes more pragmatic, church growth, is they start focusing on things that simply work and not being faithful. So purpose isn't bad. Church growth isn't bad. But not at the sacrifice of the purity of the church. Because what we see here first is the commendation. So Tyra, Tyra, they're doing some things well. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds and I know your love and faith and service and perseverance. And your last deeds are greater than at first. To go back to earlier chapter 2 at the church at Ephesus. Verse 2. Here's something similar, right? Ephesus, that I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil. You put the test of those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have also not grown weary. But what does he have against Ephesus? He has against them that you have left your first love. And what is verse 5? Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. You can't help as you flip to Thyatira and go, this sounds really familiar in this kind of comparative way in that they're doing things that Ephesus is not doing. They're commended not only for deeds, but they have love. In fact, it's a pretty good compliment. There's progress there at that church that your last deeds are greater than at First, there's growth. Growth that Ephesus did not see, but where Ephesus was strong, they dealt with theological error. They dealt with the purity in the church. Thyatira, that is what they will have against Thyatira. Verse 20 says, although these things are good, you're loving people, you're growing, you're not dealing with sin. And I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. As I said, that's pretty much word for word the issues going on in Pergamum, the previous church. Yet he doesn't use Balaam. He uses this imagery of Jezebel to flash and go, this is distinctly wicked because of the shameless nature in which they've approached this idolatry. No amount of loving and sacrificial works, both of which are good, right? Loving is good. Sacrificial works are good. But no amount of it can compensate for the tolerance of evil. It seems that she, who calls herself prophet, so it seems to be an individual, at least perhaps leading this movement. It talks about her children in verse 23, which tends to be a biblical expression for the followers of this movement. There are people following her, and she is teaching them in some way to combine the Roman practices, these guilds of Thyatira, so that the Christians don't have to lose their jobs. And there's just that subtlety about kind of compromise that 
first it's just, man, I just want to provide for my family and keep my job and not get in trouble. No one likes to be looked down upon and judged and be condescended. But it moves past that to where clearly there are people who are not true believers even who are willing to say, okay, well, I can take this and go a step further, which are going to, I think, facetiously be called the deep things of Satan a little bit here in a moment. And they're willing to go ahead and not only commit sin by worshiping the idol, they're going to partake in these sexually immoral acts and eating of the sacrifice to the idols. There's no room for it. You've got to have both this love and purpose, just like Ephesus has to have the doctrine of purity and love. Back retire is the other side of the coin. They need to deal with this teaching in their midst. It's probably very similar to the Nicolaitans, but again, that's somewhat distinctive in that it's calling back lessons that the church needs to know from 1 Kings. So if you're thinking about throwing away your Old Testament, don't. There's things you need in there for the church today, things you can learn from Israel, that providence that you can individually learn from Israel. That pressure to compromise a little bit of purity was felt in Thyatira, and I don't think I have to illustrate too far to go, it's felt in our culture, and it's only going to be felt even more. I thought it was interesting this week, I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen over the last couple of weeks different uh, pressure points. Some of you kind of know this, I, I'm currently working on a dissertation, and I'm writing in the subject of shame, so it's kind of interesting, and I just see shame everywhere, it's kind of like you buy a new car, and all of a sudden, I never noticed that one, now they're everywhere. I didn't notice a lot of shaming, and now it's everywhere. And there's this complete interesting dichotomy in the culture because there's whole, one side, kind of the Oprah side, that shame is toxic and everyone needs to avoid shame and you should never feel shame. And then all of a sudden that same kind of left-leaning media, cultural elites, you get out of line, it is their favorite weapon. You tweet the wrong thing, you're toast. In fact, we don't want you just to delete the tweet. I thought this was interesting. I'm not, if some of you guys saw that Kyrie Irving, the basketball player, I thought it was just interesting, though. Um, they want him to apologize. Thought, that's just so interesting. I mean, they're going, you just can't, we don't want you to be quiet. We don't want you just to delete the tweet. We want you to publicly apologize. And unless you publicly apologize, you can't work. And they suspended him indefinitely. And now I think it's been a five-game suspension. It's only 2.2 million. Come on. What's a million here? And a million there. Really, it's probably not that big a deal to him other than feeling that shame, right? But it's going to come down at some point, that cultural shift. So I'm not saying that that wasn't something he shouldn't have tweeted out. At least my understanding is he tweeted out uh, a link to an anti-Semitic website. Not anti-Semitic. <laughs> but at the same time, you realize where that cultural thermometer of what they value can quickly shift to say something that you're calling that sin. If you say that sin, you can't work here anymore. You can't have public office and say that lifestyle is a sinful lifestyle. You can see how it gets there pretty quick. Another one of recent, good old Kanye, makes the news all the time. I think he likes it. He says he lost $2 billion. $2 billion since saying the wrong things. 
I'm not saying he said the right thing. It seemed really ridiculous and foolish what he said. But it was quick and swift. I say that to say Thyatira had a cancel culture. We have one. And right now, you might not be in the kind of the line of fire. I'm just saying it's not that hard to realize you can get in that line. And then the question is the question Thyatira is faced with. What do you do? And I don't know specifically, because every situation is probably going to end up being somewhat unique and personal, but you're going to have to make choices. And I'm just telling you, listen to the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame and fire in his feet that are burnished with bronze, and don't sin. Don't sin and don't tolerate sin, especially in this context, which is what? The church. You may not be able to control your workplace, and that's okay. That's not the church. But here, in the church, we do not tolerate it. In fact, the pursuit in the church is not only towards purpose and purity, it is towards repentance. Look at verse 21. The pursuit of relentless repentance, uh, repentance in verse 21. And I gave her time to repent. That is to turn from her ways. And she does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold... I will throw her on a bed of sickness, which seems to be some ironic way here of saying not only does that represent likely death, but also in the sense of what's her sin. You're going to get in bed with Jezebel? Well, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her, you get to go with her into this great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children. Again, I think that's this idea of followers with pestilence. And as you follow the ways of this Jezebel and her teachings, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give each one of you according to your deeds. That is, there is a time coming where God will not be mocked. You may be mocked for a moment. Uh, God may be mocked at, at work. People may use his name in vain. But the day is coming where that is never going to happen Again, But this idea of repentance, I don't think it's meant to be there for the church in the sense of every one of you should look back on the last 24 hours of your life, the last seven days of your life. If you've done anything wrong, spoken any words of discouragement or sharp out of anger, then you should question whether you are a Christian. I don't think this is this idea of repentance, but also I think it is the idea of preaching. That is to say, there are some people at that time, and he's going to use this language, because there's some people who don't clearly follow these teachings. So I like to think of preaching. If the shoe fits, wear it. If that issue is not your issue, don't worry about it. There's going to be people, and this room is larger than it used to be, where this shoe fits. And for some people in verse 20. 1 and 22, unless she repents, unless they repent, if the shoe fits and they have never repented, that is, initially put their, turn from their sin, put their trust in Christ and their hope in Christ, then they should. Today is the day of salvation. We understand even the believer who's walking in this world, who's still in the flesh, is still struggling and fighting sin, is going to have to, when they do, turn from it. So we understand Christians continually pursue relentless 
repentance. If the shoe fits it, I think just go ahead and, and, and wear it, though. Understand, though, you can rest in what Christ has done. But look at your life and look at those areas and say, I'm going to follow Christ. And there are moments, we've all been there, where people have admonished you or called you out where you didn't even realize what you were doing. And so those are good, and that's, that's just part of being in the church. We're not to remain there. So if there's something going on in the church, like Tyre Tyre, this is pretty public, this is pretty blatant, you deal with it. And so deal with public sin is one of the implications of this. And of course, this is back, not to say, private sin's fine. Private sin's not fine, but I can't do much about your private sins. I'd like to spend more time with most of you. But the reality is, I see a lot of you on Sunday and not a whole lot of you Monday through Friday. Hopefully, you know, a few times a year, come over, get to know one another. We have church events, that's wonderful. But there are so many ways that you can hide sin from a pastor, right? A little harder to hide them from a spouse, but you're not going to hide them from the Lord, the one who searches the minds and the hearts. Let him search your heart. Let him search your mind. Don't feel guilty for me. Let his word do its work. And realize, which is always interesting, this is a good thing. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid. I will give you to each one of you according to your deeds. Christ has bore my sin on the cross. I get life and life eternal. Well, I'm not afraid. That's okay. And if not, though, there is a reason to fear. Pursue this relentless repentance. Whether it's this idea in Scripture you see, maybe you guys are familiar with this term, sins of commission, sins of omission. I think I've used it in a while, but we do some things, we sin sometimes by actually actively doing something that is sinful. So we talk about sins of commission. But then also there are other times where we sin by not doing something. And that's what it means to commit the sin of omission. Sometimes those are a little tricky. The church of Thyatira is guilty of both. Right? They're sinful in their acts of sexual immorality, bowing down to idols, compromising the gospel. But they're also guilty, these next crew that we're going to come into, of not dealing with sin. Because you might think if Thyatira thought, we can just sit back and I'm not committing sexual immorality. I'm not worshiping the idols, and so I'm good. But you're going to have to deal with it in the church. A lot of people know Thyre Tire is small. Perhaps there's a, a, a small town, and there are only one church to go to, and those kinds of things, which I think we all understand that there are challenges that when you're dealing with people, and it's, and it's small. But they're called here to deal with sin in the camp. Pursuing relentless, relentless repentance. Thirdly, avoiding shameless idolatry. You have to pursue holding fast to the truth. Look at verse 24. Pursue holding fast to the truth. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not have this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Some of that have not been led astray. 
And he doesn't lay, lay any other burden on them. He says, keep the faith. Keep enduring. Keep loving. And so that's where I think there's a balance here. If the shoe doesn't fit, they might need to do something in the sense of confrontation, dealing with sin in the camp. But he's not laying this extra burden on them. Especially the burden of these negative things, right? The, the, that you are going to be thrown on a bed of sickness. Say, I'm not laying that on you. It says, you've not known this teaching. It's called the, the deep things of Satan. It's kind of a, a saying in that culture, as far as I know, as far as I read, that they kind of talk, there, there's the deeper things, the more spiritual things, and probably turned around that, that this woman teaching, Jezebel, as she's known here, is teaching, teaching the deeper things. That is, you might be Christians, You've heard this before in the church today, but I can show you the deeper things, right? There, there's more. The scriptures are not sufficient. I can teach you more deeper things of God. And he probably turns this phrase around. Say, you have known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. And he's going to place no other burden than, verse 25, to hold fast until he comes. Which I find pretty comforting. I can't do much. If you just want me to hang on in a crazy world... All right, one thing, pretty simple, hang on, hold fast until he returns. Okay, I can do that. I don't know what to do, hold fast until he returns. The same language of I uh, totally snow the burden of you. Go to Acts chapter 15, and you see the Jerusalem council, they, they kind of go in that, they, they hold nothing. They don't want to place an extra burden on them. But there are a few things they're not supposed to do. And this is one of those issues here mentioned in Thyatira. It's also mentioned in Acts Chapter 15. Rather, we're not, as a church today, as a church then, we're not out there pursuing these kind of ex, ex, uh, experiential, esoteric knowledge outside of what God has revealed. Everyone wants to be special. I'd like to come with you with a special vision from the Lord, and I'd feel wonderful. But I don't have anything else than what He has revealed. And it's very dangerous the minute you think you have. Rather, we're going to take every captive thought to the obedience of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 says it this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations, every lofty thing raised up against knowledge of God. And take every captive thought to the obedience of Christ. And are ready to punish all disobedience. This is what they're not doing at the of power. They just start doing wherever your obedience is fulfilled. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is in Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. If you are Christ, then you are holding fast to his truth, which means you're holding fast to him. You want to stand firm against shameless idolatry? Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to His Word. And lastly, these last two verses, 26 to 29, pursue remembering your future hope. This is pretty much like you're noticing this similar pattern within all of these letters. There's some things that are similar and some things that are new. Every time we, we learn a little bit more, and each time we're supposed to be overcomers, cling to Christ. He says, he who overcomes, that is, the believer, he who keeps my deeds until the end, 
There's promises. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my father. And secondly, he said, I will give him the morning star. You as near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This promise, if I see it, depending on how your Bible knows Old Testament references, just like in Revelation so many times, it's not quite a direct quote. But the language comes from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. It's a kingly psalm. Of which Christ is king. Ask of me, Psalm 2.8 says, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. You overcome, you get to be with Christ. Even more, you get to partake, verse 28, in this coming messianic Rain. And it's the best understanding of what does he mean by the morning star, the bright morning star. When you wake up, you see a bright star. It is the day, uh, the dawn of a new day. You flip over to Revelation 22, 16. I think it's probably one of the most helpful places. You'll see this three or four times where the star is referenced to the reign of Christ. I think probably here that you're going to be a partaker in that messianic reign with Christ. And probably contrast, we didn't really talk here, verse 22, with one of the judgments, which is they're going to be taken into the great tribulation if they don't repent, which is going to be, I think, connected to the hour of testing in verse 10. And throughout Revelation, we talk tribulation versus great tribulation. We're talking about that seven-year period. So they're going to either continue into the great tribulation, that seven-year period that Daniel speaks of, or they're going to be given these promises in be part of the messianic messianic reign at the beginning. But if you look at Revelation twenty two sixteen, it says, "I Jesus," it's referencing Isaiah eleven one, which talks about the root of Jesse. But I Jesus sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Christ is the bright morning star. But even more than that, it represents his messianic reign that is promised that you are looking forward to throughout the book of Revelation. This realization that it's going to happen in real time on this earth where he will establish his reign and rule. And fulfill all those promises that you read in the Old Testament. He's coming back and he will fulfill them. Second Peter 1 says it. This way, verse 17. For when he received that as Christ, honor, glory from God the Father, such an inheritance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountains. We're talking the transfiguration. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until when? When do you have to stop paying attention? You have to stop paying attention to the more sure prophetic word. He says, well, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, Christ returns. Notice, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate it until he comes. There's certain things 
we're not able to do until Christ returns, right? But when he does, promises, if you have been faithful, if you have clung to him, if you believe his word is true, I'll give you the morning star. Cue his ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to Thyatira, to every church throughout all generations, including Providence. Thyatira has an issue. They're not dealing with the shameless idolatry. And that's going to take many forms. Our culture has different golden calves, right? Different sacred cows. We're probably going to shift even over time. I think you've got to get a picture of some already. You violate certain things, they're going to crack down hard. But in the church, what you can control, Dr. Tiber is a warning not to tolerate it, but to call it out, confront it, and deal with it. Lord, 1 Corinthians 6, as we close, it's a reminder Church of Corinth has similar issues. Things going on within the church, particularly in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, of lawsuits being brought, that is, the church of Corinth is acting like the world. In the world, you just sue everybody. If your coffee's too hot, you sue them. In the church, if the coffee's too hot, sue Chris Snyder this morning. We're not liable. But they're, they're acting like the world. And so that's the issue here. And this is a good reminder. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It lists all these things, which is not to say there aren't any more sins. It's just throwing out some pretty notable ones, some pretty public ones. And to say the church is full of these people. But it's pretty important. The church is full of former people. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the righteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. As you made that list long enough, such were all of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's going to go on to talk about sin and its nature, particularly uh, fleeing from sexual immorality, which is the issue here. And haunts the church. It is to say this is not to be tolerated in the church. That is to say when you come to church, when you, when you want to be part of the church, it's okay. If, if there's, there's really, you think about three groups of people. There's one group that comes in, as we talked about last night, that's outside the church, that's wondering. And hopefully you stay, and hopefully you come to know what it means to have a relationship with Christ. The rest of us, if you're in Christ, this is meant to be, so are some of you. This is, but this is past tense. You, you don't have you know, a D group for swindlers. We have D groups for former swindlers. We don't have you know, D groups here for you know, someone who is an adulterer. We don't have diggers for that, right? It's supposed to be former. That's the way it is to be in the church. Former, yes. Current is the answer. No, repent of those sins. Think about these four churches we've had so far. Ephesus, so pure church in many ways, but cold. Samaria, the persecuted church. Pergamon has a similar issue to Thyatira. 
But if you had to pick out of the four churches, which one would you say is faithful? I don't know if I would have picked. I don't know if makes I want to pick it. But out of the four so far, only one doesn't have some phrase that says, but I have this against you. And that's Smyrna, the persecuted church. What if you'd pick that church? you want to be that church? You'd be like, oh, I want to lose my job because they're the ones, unlike Thyatira, unlike Pergamum, they're willing to lose it. They're willing to lose the influence, the job. It's difficult. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. But sometimes the most loving thing to do is to deal with sin in the camp. That's the lesson from Thyatira. Otherwise, you end up promoting something that is not Christianity at all. And so it's not just about all the good things they are doing, but it's a reminder that no church does everything perfect. And it's not my job to come up with a new slogan for the new year. You will not hear a sermon here in 2023 about the new vision and the new direction and the new building this morning. You won't hear it. There's no new vision. There's no new direction. I have the vision. I have the direction. But what I am doing, what my job is, is to look at the church and go, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? And those are the lessons from Tyre Tyre. There's some good things and there's some bad things. And this is true of us. And it's true of you as collective individuals that make up the church. You're doing some things well and you're not doing other things as well. So I'll leave you with that question. How are you doing? How do you think the church is doing? And then make adjustments. Repent if needed. And pursue and cling to Christ. There's no other burden laid on the church. Cling, hold firm, pursue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning that we do have to look at this church. We see many things about Fire Tire that we can identify with, many things that are familiar in our culture. The pressures to compromise, even times where we feel it and think it feels like persecution. And truly, there are ways that it, it is. We understand there are degrees within that. And the state we are in is one of a lesser degree than much of the world. But let us put ourselves in a time where there is true cost. And ask ourselves, do we have the conviction to hold firm and to not compromise about what is true? And to confront sin and to confront error and do so in a loving way and learn from all of these churches we have seen so far and the churches that we will even see over the next three weeks. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.